In this podcast, we're going to look at mild hypertension. I'm Helen McDonald, editor of the analysis section, and we're now joined by Steve Martin, rural family physician and assistant professor at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. He's here to discuss his overdiagnosis article on mild hypertension in low-risk people. Steve, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. Appreciate the opportunity. Begin by giving us some of the background um, to to this um, topic, how you got interested in it. Well, certainly, uh, this is uh, such a key part of our work and identification as uh, primary care physicians. And the uh, both the public sphere and, and the medical sphere have been um, inundated with different perspectives and guidelines over the last 10 or so years. Uh, that was the period of time when I was coming through training and, and finishing uh, my residency. Uh, and we've been struck as to uh, both uh, what those guidelines have taught us, but also recent uh, evaluations such as the Cochrane evaluation by one of my co-authors on the paper, Jim Wright, Mm -hmm. and his colleagues a couple years ago, looking at really the meta-analysis of those individual patients in the mild hypertension trials. And uh, given that this is in the United States the most common reason for a medical visit, um, other than uh, a preventive visit, uh, it has it covers a wide swath of people and uh, has a tremendous impact on what we do in the clinic each day. Yes. So you write in the introduction that about 40% of adults around the globe are thought to have hypertension. And as you say, it's the most common reason for visiting the doctor in the US and may account for up to half of the global deaths from cardiovascular disease. So it's certainly a big, a big problem. And you write that over the course of the 20th century, hypertension became this kind of archetype um, of an individual and public health prevention strategy. How did that happen? Uh, Well, it's a fascinating history and um, so much uh, good work has gone into this and identifying this. Jeremy Green um, at Johns Hopkins uh, has written a history releasing the floodwaters when uh, the medication Diarill came out in the 1950s that really looked at the arc of first measurement and uh, a number of uh, seminal findings in the 1910s and 20s, uh, mainly from life insurers. They were very aware that folks with a uh, systolic blood pressure uh, over 140 and over 160 uh, conferred higher mortality risk. And so these epidemiologic understandings have been uh, with us for nearly 100 years. what, it, what developed was a way to actually put this measurement at scale. And uh, beginning in 1914, a call for all clinics to have sphygmometers um, mm. in place to allow this measurement. So now we had the ability to measure. We had uh, the no- knowledge that higher blood pressure conferred risk. Um, there was, however, no way to no known way to address this um, clinically. And through a treatment mechanism, that is what changed in the 1950s. And it, I think, is a highlight of medicine, the VA cooperative studies that did show this reduced mortality um, for folks who uh, had very elevated blood pressures, over 115 diastolic. Um, So here we had a very prevalent disorder that was uh, conferring risk, and now a treatment um, that reduced that risk. And so as an archetype of medicine, uh, this this fits very um, well with, with our with our approaches in allopathic Western medicine and is a real achievement. Um, the, the, the continuing arc of this is to 
um, as with many now numeric diagnoses that are relatively asymptomatic, um, is to find uh, more milder, milder and milder cases uh, where drug treatment often may be helpful. And it's here where the construct of uh, benefit from drug treatment uh, starts to um, lose its steam in terms of uh, the actual data we have. And this is where the debate is in your article, isn't it? So we know the value of having a label of hypertension in people who have moderate and severe hypertension. And the debate now is really about what we should do with people who are low risk with mild hypertension. Can you just tell us what those two labels mean? Who are low risk people and what do we currently understand as mild hypertension? Sure, absolutely. So I think these are, again, these are, um, uh, as an English major, I'm, I'm, I continue to be interested in how we name things. Um, so the naming here, I think, is, is key. One for low risk. So these would be people without a history of uh, cardiovascular events, uh, without a history of diabetes, and without a history of chronic kidney disease. Um, those people uh, have been shown to have uh, uh, significant and, and measured improvements in health with uh, approach to blood pressure that's pharmacally, pharmacologically mediated. Um, as to mild, uh, mild uh, uh, is refers to a systolic blood pressure of 140 to 159 millimeters of mercury um, and up to 90 millimeters of mercury um, for a diastolic pressure. What's current best practice in making a diagnosis of hypertension? Well, uh, that that is a, a humbling fact for many of us. So uh, in studies of how physicians uh, specifically measure blood pressure, um, we consistently get a higher number than uh, would be objectively found by a colleague or certainly at home. And uh, what's striking in looking at the data is that uh, improving our measurement in the clinic um, to the standard that's called for would actually double the rate of the number of patients who are, are, are at a level considered control. Um, and this involves waiting five minutes uh, for a patient to sit. It involves uh, two measurements and averaging them. Um, relatively simple elements, uh, which in, in general practice, unfortunately, have been, um, are, are often uh, not completed. Uh, even more uh, substantial in terms of changes uh, we think that are ahead is the understanding that home blood pressure measurements and home blood pressure titrated treatment likely offer uh, far better outcomes for patients, uh, both because those who are at are normotensive at home uh, would be identified, um, and also because those who remain elevated uh, would now uh, provide a sense of, of where their blood pressure is uh, in the main, and we, we allude to this in the article and uh, look forward to the technologies that now allow uh, home monitoring to be at a uh, price point that allows this to happen at scale. And what kind of proportion of people might fall into that category? Right, well, this this uh, gets very much at sort of uh, an, uh, where diagnosis matters. Uh, once um, We've been very good in, in medicine and healthcare, I think, and, and research in showing um, uh, different uh, slices of, of people who are affected by a condition. Um, often the studies are done in 
uh, very enriched populations such as the VA cooperative study with very high uh, blood pressures. And so we see a very a, a marked impact and improvement. Um, with mild, however, we're looking at approximately 22% of the world population. So this is a, an extraordinarily large group, um, very uh, with a lot of uh, different contexts for their blood pressure and for their health. Uh, with individual risks from blood pressure that uh, vary considerably, uh, given that uh, this measurement has, has no, um, is not informed by age or uh, other comorbidities. Um, and uh, this is in comparison with uh, blood pressures over 160, which are approximately 13%, and blood pressures over uh, 180, which are approximately 9% uh, from uh, worldwide epidemiologic studies. Okay. So it's a significant proportion of the hypertensive population, these people with mild hypertension. So the mild majority. <laughs> the mild majority. <laughs> and in your article, you explain that there's been this leap of faith tempting us into wanting to treat everybody that has elevated blood pressure based based on the epidemiology that if we could reduce that, that we would reduce their risk of having future events. Has that played out for this group? Uh, it, it, it hasn't appeared to. Um, I think this is, um, this is part of a project that, that understandably recognizes the observation, uh, as we've known for nearly 100 years, that blood pressure is a continuous uh, measurement, and, and that gradient confers greater risk uh, with higher blood pressures. This is you know, very well established. However, for the given individual, uh, their risk is uh, uh, personalized and that uh, if those individuals if those individuals are extracted from from uh, study as the Cochrane analysis did, uh, we do, do not see uh, a net benefit to their treatment. Um, I should remark that, that that this is not how hypertension is generally uh, projected into uh, clinical practice or to the public. And we make note in the article that in the uh, recent publication of the from the authors uh, who were uh, appointed to JNC eight, you know, one of the first remarks is that that treatment of blood pressure uh, is a well known effective method of reducing uh, morbidity and mortality. Uh, each of the citations given for that single sentence comes from interventions for moderate and severe hypertension. So, um, but one would have to know the literature to sort of know that that, that does not envelop a mild hypertension population. So this brings us onto the territory of um, what, what the thresholds for diagnosis have become and what the guidelines for treatment has been. Tell us a bit about... Um, how these decisions are made and what the guidelines say currently? Current guidelines actually uh, have a spectrum now of a perspective, which um, considering the derivation of guideline, it comes from mountaineering and if you need a very clear means of ascent and descent, the guidelines were there to help you. Uh, this kind of clarity is not at all available in the realm of mild hypertension. Um, we we'd have to say that the, the Canadian NICE and European guidelines are very upfront about a relative humility about pharmacologic treatment for mild hypertension. Uh, 
either noting that it's not been shown to necessarily be beneficial uh, or using higher thresholds for pharmacological treatment uh, as part of their guidelines. The U.S. guidelines have not had that same flavor. Indeed, when the JNC-8 guidelines uh, were produced, they uh, one change they did make was to consider um, a raising of uh, treatment level to 150 millimeters of mercury for those people 60 and over. Um, and this was then uh, virtually within the same week um, challenged by the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention with opposing guidelines that said that they would not accept this and that the original JNC-7 would hold, hold firm for them. Um, and another set of guidelines from the uh, 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 another hypertension society here in the United States. So we're seeing this dissonance among expert groups. Uh, JNC-8 itself noted that their guidelines were the first time that uh, guidelines themselves, hypertension guidelines, were based on uh, evidence and not expert opinion. And uh, you know this has put the public in a quandary along with their uh, providers of medical care. Mm. In your article, you write that this, the evidence has become clearer now with this Cochrane patient-level meta-analysis that you mentioned earlier, and that showed quite clearly that there wasn't a mortality benefit. There wasn't a cardiovascular disease event difference, um, coronary heart disease and stroke. It didn't show a benefit for these low-risk people. So what's, what's driving the wish to treat more or the wish to include more people in in this guidance is it is it money is it um what what's happening uh well this this becomes i think importantly um uh, a recognition of sort of, of medicine and sociology um uh in a number of different realms and and uh, I'll, I'll work to be succinct but they're they're each of them are very potent uh one is this idea of chronic illness uh one thinks of something that's chronic as being irreversible. Um, uh, arthritis may come as a as a as a quick example. However, um, hypertension is reversible. This is a reversible process. I saw a patient who is coming off her last antihypertensive. She's been measuring her blood pressure at home. Uh, these numbers have all been very reassuring. She feels terrific. Uh, here's a, a patient who came to me with a diagnosis in her chart of malignant hypertension. And now she no longer has this diagnosis. So I think the archetype of chronic illness is belied by the fact that um, these diseases, which often are ones of activity and diet, um, can be reversed. And that this message to the public has been relatively muted. Um, in addition, I just uh, prior to our talk, uh, keyed in the word uh, Tecturna to Google. Uh, the first website that comes up is from the company itself. Um, and that result uh, right below says, learn about Tecturna, a blood pressure treatment that targets the enzyme renin, a key contributor of high blood pressure. Uh, yet this medication has not been shown to reduce morbidity nor mortality. Um, it's been approved by our Food and Drug Administration uh, based on the surrogate outcome of blood pressure. And like other medications, uh, it's enzymide comes to mind. Uh, these, these medications can change surrogate outcomes with no known benefit to health. And that is a major quandary that exists in Western medicine overall, 
and uh, has a certain uh, inertia to it. And, and lastly, I would just say that um, markers of quality, quote unquote, have now incorporated ideas of hypertension control uh, and are somewhat uh, um, without the context of that measurement. So uh, in my own state of Massachusetts, we have a quality measure from an insurer uh, of the number of people with hypertension who are below 140 milligrams of mercury uh, systolic at the end of the calendar year. And this has led to consternation in our health system if someone has a fracture on December 30th uh, and their blood pressure is understandably elevated, uh, should it be measured again on December 31st to show that that person was actually quote in control? Um, so these have, th these have led to sort of uh, sad outcomes where um, the focus is not no longer really on health, but on a number, and that that number, as we've discussed, uh, the evidence for it is is quite um, uh, limited. Hmm. So towards the end of the article, you discuss that you think that change is needed in how we're approaching um, mild hypertension, and particularly in reallocating some of the funding uh, which is used to to manage mild disease. And you, you write that in the US, it's estimated that about 32 billion a year is spent treating mild hypertension, which is about 1% of the annual healthcare costs and about a third of the national expenditure on public health. What 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 do you see as the way forward? How, think, how should things be different? I think uh, policymakers, both at the uh, in the clinical level and the public health level, have been concerned about um, uh, individualizing risk. And yet, we've seen with diabetes, the American Diabetes Association, coming out with uh, recognition that uh, targets for glucose should be individualized. We've seen this happen again also recently with cholesterol and recognizing that uh, sharp marks uh, of numbers do not tell the whole story for a particular individual. And my sense is that um, among policymakers, the concern has been uh, not having uh, uniform standards for blood pressure will lead to a weakening of quote-unquote control of that blood pressure. Uh, I, I hope we can take a new tack. And the new tack uh, recognizes, uh, as has been published in BMJ and other, the BMJ and other journals, that we have a very clear sense that lifestyle work, um, the, the work of uh, exercise, the work of weight loss, and it is work for many of us, uh, is, incredible, is potent, effective, uh, has benefits well beyond blood pressure, um, and uh, is with, uh, without major harm, as far as we know, except for maybe a twisted ankle here and there. So uh, it, having direct care of patients, uh, as we all do, who benefit from these uh, interventions, um, supporting them with public health measures is absolutely crucial. And and in the U.S., I'm, I'm sorry to say, I feel like this is not, uh, this can be done even, this should be done better and with more funding. Um, we've seen data from different studies uh, in Canada, I believe, showing that urban areas that have more areas of walking uh, can have decreased rates of diabetes. Uh, this does require funding. It requires a recognition that Western standards of health and, and lifestyle uh, have to be modified. And I'm certainly not the first to say this, nor are my co-authors. This is uh, work strictly from Jeffrey Rose and derives from, uh, derives from Jerome Stamler, who's quoted in the article as saying, our medicalization of 
of blood pressure, that a high-risk strategy referred to at the time, uh, offers no possibility, quote, of ending the high BP epidemic, end quote. Um, and so I, my co-authors and I see public health as a, as a key and the key element for hyper, mild hypertension. And this will now, this would allow more work to be done in the clinical side at what we're good at, which is working with uh, high-risk populations, those who will uh, have uh, uh, contribute to half the cardiovascular events or those who've had a, a prior one. Uh, those folks do not have high-quality care at this time uh, after uh, with this high-risk status. Um, and uh, conjecture is that their care is uh, diluted with uh, many low-risk people as well and that we're not able to uh, have, they don't have the focus they currently need at the systemic level. Steve, thank you very much for joining us. And for those of you who would like to read Steve's article in full, you can now find it on thebmj.com.